So in this episode of the podcast, I'm really talking about uh, some of the insights that come from paying attention to the way that your mind works, giving awareness to the mind. But just be aware that um, I always do this at the start of a podcast, I I tell you not to watch it. (laughs) It's not from some kind of insecurity or something I'm happy to share, but just I want people to know what they're going to watch because they're quite long these and I don't want you to waste 45 minutes to an hour of your time going through something that's not relevant to you. So just so you know, uh, these are quite it's quite a rambling talk in this episode where I'm really just exploring this concept from no particular tradition's perspective. Um, It's just more about the mechanism behind how your mind works and how attachment um, is formed. So if that's not something that's interesting to you, then you've been warned. So either enjoy or click on another video. So I've been here away from my regular life for nearly half a year now. Um, basically when when COVID started in uh, early 2020, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, basically all of my teaching was ended, like, like many people's um, were affected. And so I basically went to my house and uh, spent the time practicing and, and focusing on myself and drawing for, for that whole time. So I've been focusing on my, my own training very, very solidly since early 2020. But six months ago, I, I, I really realized that I needed to take that extra step and, and get away from everything and do what I've done many times in my life, which is return to Asia to go back into a personal practice retreat. Because it doesn't matter how disciplined you are in your practice, sometimes being around your normal life is just problematic. You have to get away. Or, or for myself, I find that I have to. So, so here I am. You know, six months time. Six months I've been away from everything uh, in Bali, just just practicing. And I, I decided when I came out here that I wouldn't focus on martial arts. In fact, I haven't focused on martial arts training in, in nearly a year and a half, two years or something. Though Tai Chi and Bagua have been a large part of my life for many, many years, um, I really just wanted to focus on uh, not even Neigong, I wanted to focus on the alchemy, the Nedan aspect of my training. So consequently, I've been doing a lot of seated work, a lot of seated practice. Hour after hour after hour, I wake up, I do the seated practice, I do the seated practice before I go to bed, and, and then during the day when I when I can, I do it. So just, just focusing on it. And... Uh, it was quite funny that the first thing that happened was I got out of shape and there was a <laughs> there was a period about three months ago where I looked at myself and I'd, I'd got quite fat just from sitting, you know, it's like I was carrying a, a tire around my abdomen and I hadn't done anything different from normal. I'd just converted my martial arts training over to, to <laughs> meditation and I guess I hadn't reduced my diet because of course the amount of food I take I eat is um, directly proportional to what I do, just like anybody, food in, convert to energy and, you know, input output needs to match. And, and I didn't reduce my diet. So consequently, I was still eating a martial artist diet, which is quite a lot, you know, I eat a lot of food when I'm doing martial arts uh, teaching and, and intensive training. So I want to keep my, my, my body healthy and I want to be able to, to rebuild uh, the tissues and, and all these kind of things, you know, keep the body in, in a good state. But when I switched to meditation, I, I didn't drop the food. So I did about three months ago, four months ago or whatever. I looked at myself and I'm like, oh God, here we go. So 
And then I had to put the martial arts training back into my life in order to get that weight back off, which I've, I've done now, um, thankfully. And it wasn't for any, not for any vanity reason that I cared, um, only that uh, I feel that as a teacher of Qigong and meditation and, and martial arts, um, it's part of my responsibility to keep myself healthy, because even though health is not a, a prime concern for me, I'm not a medical Qigong practitioner, um, I'm primarily interested in spiritual cultivation, um, a lot of other people are coming for health, and health is a part of it, and health is a, a foundation of it, so I think it's my role to try to be as healthy as I possibly am able to, um, because otherwise it strikes me as a little bit of hypocrisy, you know, as even though I'm not a medical practitioner, um, with regards to my Qigong, my medical practice is really within Chinese medicine, you know, but uh, what I'm saying is I'm not really doing this for health or fitness especially, but because so many people come to me and that's a prime concern for them, then I feel that as their teacher I should uh, maintain a certain degree of that myself. So, you know, so I had to put the martial arts training back into to my life to, to, to get fit and healthy again. So right now, what I'm doing is focusing heavily on my alchemy and my nadan and also upon the heart fasting work that I learned from various teachers like Wang Hai Tao and Hao Nan Ren and people like that and and uh, trying to develop the qualities that I find um, appealing I suppose or those those qualities of my mind those personal qualities that kind of drive me forward those things that I seek it seems even weird saying that because I don't know if I seek it anymore so much as it's just natural for me to do it. So it's an odd way of wording it, but you know what I mean. So um, the work I've done has been a combination of quite intense energetic practice, uh, according to the systems I practice, as well as some a lot of inquiry, a lot of inquiry and development of certain mental qualities, trying to develop my qualities such as concentration and, and insight and so on and so on. It's become very um, clear to me or apparent to me in my own practice that, that I've tried to explain this to people before, but it was difficult for me to put into words, but I'll say it now. And, and of course, it's only my own realizations from my, from my training, so it might have no <laughs> might have no place in reality or fact but uh, essentially to me you know there is no such thing as a meditation practice no such thing as a meditation method um, and when I say that people look a bit confused but but what I mean is like you know if I'm talking about a punch there is a technique to a punch I turn my hip I, I extend my arm or, or whatever I drive the power from the ground whatever technique whatever style you have and the result is a punch there's a direct cause and effect between I do something with my body and then a punch arises. So we can say there is a technique to a punch. That is true. But could you say there is a technique to meditation? I don't think there is. I think it really, but then it de depends upon how you define meditation. Because to me, meditation really means uh, that, you know, jhana, what they, the word they use in the, in the Sanskrit writings, which means to come to a very particular state of being, a very particular, I don't want, it's difficult to use the wrong word, but because it's not an experience, you know, meditation is not an experience because you shouldn't strive for experience, but there is an experience to be had when you enter into a meditative state. It's a very specific thing, you know, it's not so, so vague. So 
only to make that clear that when I use the word meditation, I mean it in the strictest sense of entering into a meditative state, okay, to become meditative, if you like. But I don't mean just sitting and closing your eyes. That to me is not meditation. I'm referring specifically to entering the jhana or maybe entering samadhi, what is sometimes called tai ding in Chinese, if you know what these things are. So for sake of simplicity, maybe we call this meditation proper or, or something, you know, to, to go to this particular place. Now, <laughs> as a footnote, I can already feel, I can already sort of hear the, the non-jewel police <laughs> um, floating around on the internet in the comments saying, there is no place to go to, there's no state to go to, there is no, yeah, I know. I realize all this, but of course, I'm just using linguistic patterns to point towards a particular practice. So before you start sending me those messages, I'm using a limited thing, which is language, to try to describe something that's that's beyond words. So obviously, you have to forgive me for, <laughs> for those limitations. So if I'm referring to a particular thing, this thing that's meditation, it's very difficult to actually have a practice for it. It's not like the punch where I move my body in a way and a punch arises. In meditation, it's a little different because meditation arises when you have all of the qualities in place. The qualities are there. So all we ever train in meditation are the qualities. We train the quality of concentration, the quality of calmly abiding, the quality of focus, the quality of insight, the quality of clarity. And all of these, these mental qualities are trained so they are within you until you get to such a state that when you then just relax and breathe and look inside, reverse the light, look inside your, your, yourself, look back towards awareness, then if those qualities are there, then like a set of keys, a set of vibrations, however you want to word it, they will then move you into a meditative state. So somebody who doesn't have those qualities may enter a meditative state, it's possible, but it's more likely if those qualities are there. So. The reason I want to talk about all that is because this is what I've been doing while I've been here is just trying to train those qualities, train those qualities. So I had the periods of time where I sat um, on my meditation uh, cushion um, and I trained specific qualities. So I would spend, I spent like, you know, a couple of weeks looking at concentration and a couple of weeks looking at um, uh, calm abiding and, and things and, and my inside development and just sort of working on those qualities which to me were like individual kind of missions or tasks it's just easier for me to organize it in that way and then what I do is I try to train them until they become an inherent quality within my my being you know this was then coupled with the energetic work I do because to me the amount of chi you have in your body really uh, increases the efficiency of everything you do, including the stabilization of the mental qualities. So for me, the two practices go hand in hand. If I lack energy, I lack vitality, I lack chi, my body's not functioning properly, I'm tired. And, and that happens every, to all of us sometimes, you know, and you sit on the meditation cushion and there's, <laughs> there's a lack of energy. It's very difficult for me to either touch upon or sustain or stabilize the kind of mental qualities that I'm seeking in my practice. So therefore, I have to have the energetic practice of Negong or Qigong to support what I'm doing. Now, these qualities could be trained during a specific practice, but then, as well as this, they must be supported during the rest of your time as well. 
So when I'm out and about or I'm going to the shops or I'm going to a cafe or visiting a temple or walking in the jungle or going to socialize with somebody, it doesn't matter what I'm doing, you know, whatever I'm doing outside of the practice or doing my martial arts in this case actually or, or, or running through the Tai Chi or Bagua form or something. During those periods, in order to sustain the retreat, there must be, for me, a qualitative mental practice that is sustained during those times as well. You know, that's quite, in, that's quite important because otherwise what I find is you have your practice and then you have your time when you're not practicing. And of course, when you're not practicing, it's just kind of eroding all the good work that you've done during your, your practice. And, and that's it, isn't it? That's the nature of life, that often your life and your practice are kind of pulling against each other. They're kind of diametrically opposed in many ways. And one of the things we have to learn to do is kind of make a synthesis of the two states so that your practice and your life go hand in hand, so that your practice enhances your life and your life, well, ideally enhances your practice, but at worst, we don't want it to be detrimental to the practice. So we, we have to find a way to, to make them synergistically relate to each other. So for me, I just adopt a very, very simple um, practice during the time when I'm going about my daily life, going to the shop, interacting with people, talking to the person in the cafe or, or whatever. And that is to simply uh, observe, not my breath, not my body, not anything like this, like the object of my practice is not something um, specific, but simply to observe myself to observe myself, to observe uh, my thought patterns and my, my verbal patterns, my speech patterns, but also on top of this, the, the way that my mind uh, thinks, the nature of the thoughts. So while I'm doing this, just want to share this practice with you really. It's, and not, I'm not judging or trying to change the thought processes specifically, although a change will take place of their own accord. And I'm also not... Uh, trying to absorb into them or anything like this. There's no method, there's no technique. It's an aimless practice, a goalless practice. I am simply watching what happens. So if I talk you through this, maybe you can understand um, a little bit, but I mean, for an advanced meditator, this will be very basic. But for someone who is not so experienced with meditation, uh, this practice can be very, very um, helpful can be very, very helpful, can be a bit tricky as well. <laughs> but all of the, the things in life that are worth doing are also quite tricky, I think. So essentially, uh, what happens when you have a thought, okay, is you can think of your thoughts as being like something that appears within a space or something that's projected onto a projector screen. This is how I view it. So you have the, the projector screen of your mind or your, uh, your mental space, if you like, whatever word you want to put up on it, doesn't matter. And then when a thought arises, something is projected onto that space. Something is there, like a movie playing out in, in front of you. Now, of course, as well as that thing that is projected onto the screen, there is also something that is watching the object being projected onto the screen. There is somebody watching the movie. There is somebody looking at the projector playing out this scene in front of you. Um, and for simplicity's sake, we'll simply call this your awareness. So your awareness is being aware of, is watching, is observing the object that is arising on that blank space. And these are your thoughts. So, 
One of the first things with this kind of practice, and it's something that um, sometimes I've said this and people don't like it, and that's okay because people can have different opinions. Of course, they can have different opinions. But one of the first things for me is you need to create an awareness of the difference between that that is watching and that that is being watched. That's very important. So the reason sometimes people don't like that is because everybody is very sort of hung up on this non-dual idea, like you shouldn't talk about a duplicity, a division, a separation between two parts of your mind, because ultimately, which is true, the most of the practice are based upon an idea of unity, of union, of bringing those two together. But for now, I don't want to, you know, it's not during my daily life, I'm not trying to unify the observer and the observed into one <laughs> yoked aspect of being. I'm not trying to do that because what will happen is you, if you achieve union and you enter into a full kind of samadhi or absorbed state is you, you can't function. You can't sustain that state while walking around and going to the shops and, and things like that. You can't. Once you enter into a true meditative state, you are basically useless to existence. <laughs> you are useless to life. I've heard people claim that they can kind of function in a meditative state. I wouldn't call it functioning. I would call it wandering around in a daze. I wouldn't call that functional. You certainly couldn't run a business or anything like this. Definitely not. Um, if you can function, I would argue you're not in a full meditative state. You might be in a very focused state. You might be in a very concentrated state. Uh, you might be in what they call a, what do they call that? A flow state, I suppose, is the kind of Western name for it. But but you're not in a true meditative state, not if you can function <laughs> on that level. You know, it's, there's a reason why people went away and became recluses in order to study this state. You know, they weren't, they weren't spending time as a CEO of a company or something, were they? Not during their, their retreat times. And then you've got the other thing where people say the true recluse lives, the true monk lives in the city or the true recluse lives in the city, I think is the saying. True renunciate lives in the city? I've forgotten the saying, but you get what I mean. That may be true. They do live in those places, in the city, in the towns, like I do. But at certain times in your life, you go away for periods and do retreats, of course. And those retreats, like I'm doing right now, um, these are the times when you develop the mental qualities and, and you're more likely to make leaps in your practice during these, these periods of time away. You need the time in the city as well because there's life lessons to be learned. So you need both really. One foot in, one foot out is the saying. So, hmm, a little rambling, sorry, I apologize. That's the other thing with spending so much time on your own. You tend to become more rambling, <laughs> less structured in your thought processes and in your speech because I don't have to talk to other people and explain things so much. I'm just with my own thoughts. So, I don't want to unify the object and the observer. I want to become aware of the difference between the, the object and the observer. This is what I'm trying to do. So it's the opposite of what a lot of people would think you want to do during meditative training. But it's specifically what I'm trying to do during my daily life when carrying out functions and carrying out uh, roles and carrying out tasks, you know. So by looking at the mind, we can see the truth of three qualities that are discussed within, or three actions that the mind undertakes that are discussed within many 
spiritual traditions. Taoism talks about it, Buddhism talks about it, definitely Hinduism talks about it. Uh, there's Western traditions have their own way of explaining it and they might have different takes on it, but it's, it's always very similar. And the idea is that we are caught in a state of delusion or confusion uh, and we're also stuck with our preferences or our attractions and our aversions. And so they might have different ways of talking about it, but these are the three things, your, your delusions, your attractions and your aversions. This is really what they, what we, these are kind of the mechanisms for the mind. These are the key mechanisms for, for me. So let's look at them one at a time. Let's look at delusion first. Delusion means, with regards to spirituality and regards to meditation, that you don't understand the nature of something. And in this case, you don't understand the nature of your thoughts. So we use the thoughts as a kind of microcosm to work with. But of course, this principle also applies to the external world as well. Um, so the more insight we develop into the truth of our inner universe, the more you understand the outer universe because you start to realize that they are one and the same, actually. But that can be complicated and can lead to all kinds of philosophical um, and theoretical debates about whether the, you know, about the nature of the existence of the world outside you. And it just, it just becomes a, a lot of distractions. So generally what we do is we focus upon the inside we allow the insight to the outside world to rise of its own accord. So with regards to delusion, it means not being able to see the truth of the nature of your thoughts. So the truth of the nature of your thought, according to most spiritual teachings, is that nothing is permanent. Everything comes and goes. Everything is in a state of flux. Something arises and then it falls away. Um, this is one of the key things that is often taught to you through observing the breath because you are starting to observe something that arises and falls away, a common practice in many meditation systems. But if you are deluded, then you do not recognize the arising and the falling away of something. That's the first one. The second quality of your thought or of a phenomena is that it cannot exist of its own accord. It can only exist as part of a chain of causation or it can exist as a dependent object upon you. So essentially, what I'm saying by this is if there was no observer, there would be nothing to be observed. So in the case of your thoughts, if there was nothing observing the thoughts, the thoughts wouldn't exist. Now, if you can understand that, you can see why we tend to talk about the inside world and not the outside world, because of course that comes to all kinds of philosophical debates like, well, if I can't see this plant pot, is that plant pot still there? Obviously it's still there, but it's uh, it's actually <laughs> it's actually deeper than that but it's best avoiding that kind of topic and simply stay with what is inside stay with what inside there are arguments to see as to the outside world there are there are teachings around this and experience to be had around it but i always think outside world stuff should arise of its own accord your own understanding rather than than relying upon teachings inside is enough inside is enough for now Look inside, do your practice inside. So if, uh, if I get fall for the illusion that a thought has an independent reality separate from me, then it becomes consolidated. That's what happens. And as soon as it becomes consolidated, it becomes a thing, then it becomes like a point of orientation for my sense of self. So say I have, a, I don't know, an emotion or a thought or a feeling arise. And if it arises, then it will fall away. Um, and the observer 
can just pay attention and, and see that this is the case. If I'm remaining neutral to that thought or feeling that arises, it will go and the ebb and flow of that thought and feeling will, will fall away. But if, however, I fall into the illusion that this thing has a reality of its own, oh, yeah, that is, yeah, okay, that is a real feeling. I'm justified in feeling angry. In fact, even worse than feeling angry, I am angry. I've identified with it. Then it becomes consolidated. And if something becomes consolidated, then what I mean by being a point of orientation is it will start to cause you to deviate with regards to how you see yourself. So m most people would talk about this as like building layers or building aspects of yourself, building more of your acquired nature or something like this. I see it more as like you have a little point that's you and every one of these consolidated delusions just kind of reorganizes yourself because you only understand yourself in relationship to the objects that you're, you're looking at. So delusion is based on that. And delusion is based upon thinking that that feeling exists independently of your awareness. So if, for example, you have a feeling of anger and you believe that anger to be something that has a kind of validation of reality to it, you will believe the anger is a thing rather than simply anger is <laughs> your awareness starting to become sucked into something that it should be observing. And as soon as that level of delusion starts to take place and you get a consolidated thought, something that can be clung to, something that can create a kind of attachment. And we'll return to that later. So the truth of your thoughts is that they come and they go. They're not independently existing. They only exist as a, as a reaction to the sense faculties, the sense gates producing information that is then processed by the mind. And it's all based upon causation. Nothing arises independently. This is one of the rules of the Eastern arts. So that's the first quality, delusion or confusion. The second quality is aversion, and the third is attraction. Now, obviously, we can look at aversion and attraction as the same thing. They're two sides of the same coin, really, aren't they? So aversion and attraction are, you know, whenever a thought is generated, whenever there is a feeling, whenever there is a memory, whenever there is a, well, a thought, anything, anything that is projected into that space of the mind, when your awareness notices it, notes it, then it will either be drawn to it or it will be repelled by it, repulsed by it. So if it's drawn to it, that might be something that brings you pleasure or something you think is important or something you think is relevant or something that resonates with you or something that you think has value or something you wish to explore more. So all of these things are a kind of attraction. Okay, It doesn't have to be attraction in the literal sense of I really like that or something. It can be all these kind of things, anything that validates on a positive level the nature of that thought. And then something that is causes aversion is something that you find repulsive or you don't like or you've got a fear of it or a phobia or you're, you're judgmental of it or maybe you're angry you had that thought. Maybe you're sickened that you have that thought. Maybe you think less of yourself because you have that thought. Well, that's a trivial thought. I shouldn't think that. And those kind of things, you know. These are all aversions. Now, what happens with almost every thought that's generated in your mind is you will have either an attraction or aversion. Now, different strengths of thought will develop different strengths of attraction and aversion, of course, because a, a very intense thought might have a very strong, maybe a, a sexual arousal kind of thought might have an attraction to it, or maybe a, a hatred, an anger, a sickening thought will have a very strong aversion to it. But 
others are much less on that scale, right? You know, you might have a little thought about something practical and because you're engaging in it, okay, yeah, I do need to do the shopping tomorrow. That's actually a form of attraction because my awareness is drawn towards it. Or maybe I'm like, oh yeah, I didn't like that coffee yesterday. Something very trivial, but still a form of aversion. So there is always this kind of filtering taking place in your, your mind with its preference. Am I drawn to something or am I repelled by it? This is aversion and attraction, yeah. Now kind of the Maybe we could say the function of attraction is to build a sense of identity. Maybe we could say that. Maybe, maybe that's fair to say, maybe it's not. <laughs> I haven't explored it deep enough, but I will. But the function of attraction is to build a sense of identity. It draws us towards things, draws us towards thoughts, draws us towards feelings that we can build our identity around so we can move towards these positive things. This is the function of attraction. But the byproduct of aversion is that it also builds layers of identity. Exactly the same. It doesn't matter whether it's positive or negative. It builds more layers of identity. That's the byproduct of being repelled by something as it once again creates a kind of clinging because you're clinging to the idea. You have, you've created something that is um, solidified, something that is a point of reference for who you are. So these kind of feed into each other because if I'm attracted to something or repelled by it, essentially what happens is you start to build a sense of identity between the awareness and the object and actually they kind of merge and not in a positive spiritual way like unification but rather you identify with that thought you identify with that you're attracted to you identify to that that you're repelled by and this form of identity then feeds into the delusion because now you believe that thing that you like or you dislike that you're drawn to or you're repelled by actually has an independent existence of its own kind, of its own, of its own. There's no other word for that sentence. <laughs> has an identity of its own. So you've created an object. You've created more objects for you to reorganize and reorientate your, your sense of self from. So these three things, aversion, attraction, and confusion, delusion, they're the root of self-identity or erroneous self-identity and they are the root of clinging. They are the things that you will cling to. They are the things that you will attach to. This is what they mean by the development of attachments. Now ultimately because you are attaching to something that you believe to be solid but actually is transient, it will produce a kind of disturbance. Maybe Buddhists would call that dukkha but who knows. I don't call it suffering. Not really, but, you know, definitely a disturbance. I don't like the word suffering. I think there's too many connotations to it, you know. I'd rather just stick with the word dukkha if I was talking about Buddhism. But it generates a kind of unease, if you like, within your, your mind because you're trying to cling to this raft within your consciousness, but that raft is slowly eroding, okay? And you don't know it is because you're deluded into thinking that it is independently existing. But actually, no, it's just part of a, just part of a continuum of something that's rising and falling. So it is the attraction and the aversion that leads to delusion. And it is the delusion <laughs> that generates the potential for attraction and aversion. It's a kind of cycle. And this is what's taking place like, uh, maybe not second by second, well, I think it is second by second, who knows, but just constantly throughout the course of your life, throughout the course of your day. 
And this is where it becomes an issue because you might practice, you might practice your meditation two hours, four hours, eight hours of the day. You might be hitting it really hard and, and kind of seeing through some of the veils of this lie that you've told yourself. But then ultimately, then you go out, you pop to the shops, go to the supermarket, you meet your friend, you have a drink, you have a meal, you do your online banking, whatever, I don't know, whatever menial task you may have in life. And all of these illusions and these aversions and these attractions arise, and because you're unaware of them, then they pull away from your practice and they, they become counterproductive to your practice. They are counter to what you're trying to do. In this way, your life has become the antithesis of your, your practice. So, this is really where observation of your mental processes come in to observe this process taking place because it is observable it's very observable you can pay attention to these things taking place in your mind second by second by second it's tricky and it takes um, a fair degree of kind of discipline to pull yourself back onto the task because you will want to get sucked into those objects you will want to identify with them you will want to become deluded by them you want to be attracted Weirdly, you want to be averted by them. That's very strange, isn't it? Kind of like when we have a, a love of being frightened, so we watch horror films. What's that all about? That's weird, isn't it? <laughs> but it, it's very similar with your mind. We, we, part of our being likes to be averse to things as well. I mean, we can see this on a societal level, can't we? Just how much we feel empowered by somebody having a view that's different to us that we can kind of shout at or disagree with makes us feel strong. So I guess a very similar thing is happening within our mind, you know? It's like our mind is getting on its soapbox of aversion and that makes it feel more powerful. So when I observe this taking place, I don't try to do anything or I don't have a method. I don't, I don't focus on a particular object. I don't have an imagined object. I don't have a thought. I don't have a mantra. I don't have a mudra because I'm not practicing this time. I'm living my life, but I'm just being aware of it, just watching this process unfold. Now, this is what uh, the process that I found personally that I went through is that during this time of retreat, you go through stages of comprehension of this. So the first stage of comprehension is kind of intellectual. You have to question it. Right. What's going on? <laughs> Here's my thought. What am I averse? To? Oh, no, I'm attracted to blah, blah. You know, this is this is the first stage, the kind of intellectual um, analysis of it. And it's almost like you hear the voice inside your head. You hear the, the conflict going on. And that's the kind of first stage. That's the intellectual exploration of it. And I would say that that's hugely beneficial. And what I was doing was while I was doing that level of the training, when I got home at night or at the end of the day or after I finished my practice or after I'd done my tasks, I just sat for not long, like five minutes, 10 minutes, just casually and just kind of thought back through everything that had happened and kind of look to see, well, what did I understand there? Sometimes write it down, make notes, keep a journal if you like, it doesn't matter. But this intellectual exploration can have a kind of self-analysis aspect to it because you can intellectually wade through it. It's not the deepest level of um, realization, of course, because anything on the level of intellect ultimately creates more objects. But it is a phase we can go through and it can be useful because it gives you a uh, kind of external, if you like, insight into why you do things, enables you to cognitively think, all right, I won't do that again, or that's not useful for me or whatever. But really you need to get to the next stage. 
The next stage beyond this is not just intellectually observing it happen, but feeling it happening. Feeling it happen. So this is a weird one, isn't it? Because feeling is often one of our least reliable senses, isn't it? <laughs> Have you noticed? Like when you see something, okay, you can hallucinate or maybe I'm here in the dark and maybe I see a shadow over here and I think it's something. But on the whole, my vision is quite reliable unless I have some kind of um, disability with my vision. It's, it's quite reliable. My hearing is pretty reliable. I normally know what I've heard and what I haven't heard. And again, you, your mind can play tricks on you, but it's not, not usually the case. Smell, taste, they're okay, aren't they? You know, touch, feeling. That's the least reliable sense to me. Very, very tricky one. How many people feel things that aren't true in their body? Well, as a therapist, I know this to be the case. How many people will feel a tiny little ache or bruise and then assume they have cancer or something like this? <laughs> or they'll uh, feel something that's definitely there and actually it's not, or, or feelings will come and go and, and stuff like this. I mean, these are, it's difficult, isn't it? And how accurate is your sense? You know, I mean, if I look at my hand, I can see my hand, but if I feel my hand, how accurately can I feel my hand? Well, some people would say very much. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if it's as a reliable sense faculty. So how about uh, when you feel your thoughts? Because you do feel your thoughts, right? I mean, there's a different feeling in your body when you're angry to when you're sad. There's a different feeling to when you're happy. There's a, there's a feeling to more subtle things like jealousy and envy and uh, resentment. Like. There's, there's a substratum of these kind of experiences, isn't it, that we feel inside the body. And ultimately we feel them because the mind and the body are one. So when you have a thought or an emotion, there's a, there's a sense, sensory reaction taking place. Now these feelings are quite interesting because not only do they enable you to get a somatic sort of feedback of, of what's going on, but also they enable you to develop a kind of three-dimensional orientation of something. So what I mean by that, like, how about this? What I mean by this is, Say I'm sat facing the camera, there's a feeling in my body. Now, if I turn like this and face the other way from the camera, like weirdly, I know the camera is there. Like there's a feeling that the camera is there. There's a feeling that I'm facing the wrong way. And it goes beyond what is just intellectual, knowing I've turned around. It's more than that. It's like my very feeling has orientated me some way. Hopefully that makes sense. You, you'll have felt it when you sort of walk in and it just sort of feels like something's not right. Maybe you can feel someone behind you or something. These kind of, these feelings that build a kind of three-dimensional sense of where you are. Certainly if you're someone who's done a lot of meditation or Tai Chi or Qigong, you'll have had these feelings at different times. And as you know, in meditation, often those feelings are completely unreliable because you can feel all of a sudden like you're sat next to yourself or you're very big or you're very small or you're upside down. How do you know? Because of your feeling. And obviously your feelings are lying to you. You're not really upside down. You're not really sat next to yourself or, in, or big or small. But, but your, your feeling is, is, your somatic experience is kind of orientating yourself. It's giving you a kind of radar, sonar feedback to where you are, you know. So why this is relevant is because any thought you have come with a feeling. Any action you have comes with a feeling, a thought and a feeling. We even talk about your feelings as if they're thoughts, don't we? Your emotional feelings and things like this. We connect it to that sense, that tangible somatic experience of your thoughts. So now, on the observation level, beyond intellectually watching it happen or paying attention to 
the nature of the thoughts, the aversion, the attraction, the delusion. I can also feel it. I feel it. And this will naturally evolve. It will naturally evolve as you go through the process of observing till you get to a stage where you feel the attraction and the aversion and you feel the delusion of consolidating a thought. And more than just feel those three things, you actually end up feeling the entire mechanism of your mind. It's like, I feel it, I feel it doing that. I feel it going through all of those processes. I feel it attaching. I feel it clinging. And as soon as I start to feel it and then pay attention to that feeling, I get a deeper level of insight to the mechanism of my mind. Because can you intellectually understand something as complex as the mind? Whoa. Maybe. Some can. Maybe some very good psychologists, maybe some very good Buddhists, who knows. But more importantly, to experientially, somatically feel the mechanisms taking place is a more useful stage to get to. There are then deeper stages as well, but for, for now, for this discussion, that's enough. When I feel this process taking place, the part of my mind that is a little deeper, a little bit more profound than my intellectual mind can become aware of this mechanism. And then this starts to pull it from the unconscious to the conscious. And this is key. Because if something is unconscious, you are unaware of it taking place, then it is running on autopilot. And when it runs on autopilot, it will always have a very strong sense of attraction, aversion and delusion. It's just the nature of the beast. Because it's kind of like your autopilot is to build this acquired mind. So if I'm mindlessly carrying out tasks and going about my day, then I will be building these consolidated points to reorientate myself against and then I'm building a sense of delusion, a sense of acquired self. But as soon as I move it towards the conscious mind and I become aware of it on a somatic level, once it's consciousness, a lot of its power is reduced. It doesn't mean you're no longer attracted to things. It doesn't mean you're no longer averse to things because you kind of need those qualities because they're useful. They enable you to navigate life. But they lose their power. So you don't cling to these ideas. So though a thought may have an attraction to it, I also recognize, because I'm paying attention to the mechanism, that the attraction is not a quality of the object itself. The attraction is the way that my awareness starts to become drawn into it. And as soon as I become aware of that, then it doesn't become so drawn into it. So there's less identification with that object, and then it will fade away. And you're back to the stages of things just rising and falling. It doesn't leave you in a numb, emotionless, non-caring, uh, apathetic state. Then he said empathetic, apathetic state. Uh, rather, actually, it gives you a much broader, richer experience of life because if you are getting sucked into these objects, it's like your spectrum of experiences becomes narrowed because after a while, through learnt behavior probably, your mind will only attach to certain experiences that it likes and the kind of, all of the, 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 nuances and colors and beauty of the entire spectrum of your experience is reduced to that one thing. But once I become aware of the kind of nature of the way that my mind is becoming attracted to or reverse these thoughts, then it steps back from its spaces created between the observer and the object. And then my, my, the rich temperature of experience goes up because now instead of being sucked into one thing, I'm, I'm pulled between these different experiences. Everything becomes more beautiful. The slightest sight or color or taste or smell becomes something that can draw me momentarily towards something that is 
beautiful that radiates within me, but because I'm not sucked into the delusion, it will rise, it will fall, and then I'm left to have another experience. This is obviously different during meditation when I'm trying to absorb into a concentrated state, but this is how I wish to experience the rest of life. It enables me to function and also appreciate it. If something is conscious, it loses its power over you. You can think of it like, you know, subliminal messaging once you're aware of it. It's not subliminal anymore, <laughs> so it doesn't work on you, does it? And it's the same kind of thing with regards to your mind. Now, the one thing that this does that is highly useful, well, it does many things, but for me the one thing that it does is it takes away attachment takes away the attachments. Now, if you look at the incorrect way people talk about attachments, they think that getting rid of attachments means getting rid of your possessions, getting rid of your partner, getting rid of your job, getting rid of your life, getting rid of your dog, go live on your own. Those are like external attachments, material attachments, that's true. But attachment is more to do with a state of mind. The attachment that starts to become eradicated is this over-identification with this thought process that you have been deluded into thinking is independently existing and not based upon causation. And once you give it these kind of qualities, then you start to attach to it, and this is what forms a layer of self. But once you can see the truth of the mechanism of how your mind works, then that attachment starts to dissolve. So you no longer start to orientate yourself according to those points. As this happens, you can find some more honesty or truth to who you may be. And that's what's most important. So, apologies of rambling. Like I say, I've spent a lot of time on my own. No reason to organize my sentences into a coherent structure when I'm, I'm here on my own. But this is, a, for me, just a, a useful part of the, the process for practitioners especially when they're on retreat, you know, when you're trying to create a, a kind of retreat setting and away from things to make the rest of your life and your practice merge with one another. But, but I'll stop there. So <laughs> thank you for listening to my rambling thoughts.